Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Dancers by Margaret Sinclair, uh, published under the name Wilton Hazard in Planet Stories, January 1952. And uh, I, I love me some Planet Stories. It's the magazine uh, that I love the covers the most on, and I know exactly what I'm getting when I get into a Planet Stories magazine. Uh, were you alive, Eric, at the time <laughs> uh, Planet Stories was flourishing? Well, I was alive in 1952. Were you aware of Planet Stories on the, on the newsstands? Um, I was six, and I didn't learn to read till I was seven. So the answer is, I might have noticed their covers, but I sure wasn't reading their contents. I I love the covers of Planet Stories. Um, even the name. <laughs> Uh, it's not space stories, it's planet stories. Um, and so when I go into a, an issue, I find a new issue or an old issue of planet stories, um, I know exactly what I'm getting um, in a certain sense. But I also, uh, I don't know how it's going to work out because it's it's very genre. You know, like if you if you pick up a Western magazine, uh, it's got a horse on the go- on the cover. It's got maybe a train, a guy with a cowboy hat, six gun, right? You know what you're gonna yep. get, but you also have a certain sense of it. It could be anywhere in that west, right? Um, and with planet stories, you know you're gonna get a rocket ship. There's gonna be somebody in a space helmet, um, and there's gonna be a planet, but you don't know what planet it's gonna be like, and you don't know uh, what they're doing on that planet. And that's what I love about Planet Stories. I think um, The Dancers is heavily influenced by the fact that it was written probably for sale in Planet Stories. Um, But I still think it works great on its own. So, uh, it's only three pages long. Shall we read it? I would like to. May I? Please. It was the hour before dawn. In the middle of the night, the big ship had landed on the new planet, the satellite of the sun Proxima. Now they sat in the dark, waiting, and they talked. I wish we hadn't killed them, Rossiter said softly. His profile was faintly visible against the diffused light of the stars. It's a bad sign, a bad start for a new life. They attacked us, Bernard answered quickly. Two spears against 40 blasters and stun guns, Rosser laughed. An attack? We should have met them with stunners at low charge, but McNess ordered us to blast the woman and the baby. Stick in my craw. All our nerves were on edge, Bernard answered thoughtfully. I know I was afraid when we first stepped out of the ship. There was something terrifying about air and space and the sky. But you're right, of course, we shouldn't have been ordered to blast. The two men were sitting a little apart, but there was a murmur of many low voices around them as the others from the Elpis waited and talked. I wonder why they attacked us, Bernard went on. Primitives usually run. We must have been an unbelievable sight to them, spiraling down out of the sky. I don't know, Rossiter replied wearily, and we can't ask them. They're dead. All five of them. 
That wind's cold. He was shivering. You could go back inside the ship, Bernard said half humorously. I'm sick of the Elpis. We all are. Eight years of it. It's too much. We'll get used to the wind, I suppose. There's going to be lots of wind with so much water and only this one landmass on our new world. It's not like Earth. Bernard made an involuntary movement. Then he relaxed. I suppose the taboo is lifted now that we've landed, he said heavily. We can talk about Earth again and wonder and speculate. I wonder what they're doing now on Earth. Starving, freezing, burrowing into the coal, ground for coal and warmth. They must be living a good many hundred feet down now. Those that are left in the seas are frozen. There's an ice sheet from pole to pole. The astronomer, We astronomers paid you back finally, didn't we, Bernard, for all the appropriations you got us in committee meeting. You were always generous with us and the physicists, but when the catastrophe happened, the mystery, the debacle, we couldn't help. We didn't know the answer. We didn't know. I remember, Bernard answered, choking a little. I remember the day before it happened. There was a report on my desk about some tribe of Indians high in the Andes. The report said that the parents had been persuaded to send their children to the school in the foothills, that even among the adults, illiteracy and ignorance were being eliminated. It was the last of the ignorant tribes. I looked up at the sign over my desk and read the motto, there is nothing unknowable, there are only things not yet known. And I thought, yes, we're getting near our goal. We've conquered ignorance and superstition and illiteracy. And as time goes on, we'll know more and more things. The area of the unknown will constantly diminish. Knowledge is like an expanding circle of light that eats into the darkness. Then the darkness came and you didn't know. We know what happened well enough, Rossiter corrected. He sounded older than his 52 years. I was at the observatory that night. I remember thinking that it was almost time for me to go to the dormitory to sleep. It was summer, Sirius and the sun would both soon be up, Sirius rose, blazing in the darkness, and after him, Leo, in the southeast. It should have been invisible in the sunlight. I couldn't believe what I saw, and still the sun didn't come up. We know what happened in a way. We don't know how or why. The sun, our sun, never rose. The sun just disappeared. How softly everyone's speaking, Bernard said irrelevantly. It's the sky and the darkness. I can hardly hear you. He got to his feet. Where are you going, Tom? Rossiter asked. I want to look at the bodies, the people we blasted, I mean. That's morbid. Don't go, Tom. Stay here. But I want to go. I'll be back. He moved away through the dimly visible outlines of men and women seated on the ground. He came back after a while and sat down by his friend in silence. I think I know why they attacked us, he said after a pause. Why? I think we interrupted some magical or religious rite. They were at a very low level of material culture. Of course, the points on the spears were stone, and they were wearing garments of what looked like some sort of tree bark, not woven cloth. 
but the young men were wearing rattles of some sort of shell around their ankles, and the old man was holding a little drum in his hands. You see, they had a good cranial capacity. As soon as human beings can think at all, they start trying to impose their will on the universe. I think they met here by the shore to perform some sort of magic. The woman and the baby watched. The old man played his drum. The two young men sang and danced. Perhaps this bit of the coast was sacred to them. Perhaps when we set our ship down here, we profaned a sacred place. The woman and the baby bother me, Rossiter said thoughtfully. It seems a dreadful thing to me to kill a woman. Ever since Kate died, Bernard rested his hand for a moment on the older man's shoulder in sympathy. It was wrong. We shouldn't have done it, he responded. But we must forget it. Tomorrow, when it's light, we'll bury them. I wonder if they were the only humanoid life on the planet, Rossiter said, pursuing his own train of thought. This island was the only landmass we found anywhere. If those five, so few, when we blasted them, did we wipe out the planet's native humanoid life? Possibly, Bernard admitted uneasily. He cleared his throat. <laughs> if they hadn't attacked us, we could have helped them. They were primitive, superstitious, blankly ignorant, of course, but they had good skulls. We, they could have learned. We'd have taught them as we did the primitives on Earth. We have led, we'd have led them gently away from their superstition and ignorance as we did on Earth. Let's not talk about it anymore. Rossiter made a sort of noise. Bernard leaned forward quickly. What's the matter, Dick? Are you all right? I, what you said, Rossiter seemed to grope for words. Be quiet a minute, Tom. I, I want to think. What you said then, I, it, he laid his hands over his eyes. I'll get Dr. Ferguson, Bernard offered. No, I'm all right. Once more, he fumbled for words. I, I've suddenly come to understand. You made me understand. As we did on Earth. What? Rossiter got to his feet in his normal voice, which sounded very loud in the darkness. He said, I know what made the sun go out. The murmur of low talking ceased suddenly. There was a sense of listening, of half-seen bodies leading forward intently in the starlight. Rossiter said, on Earth, there was always somebody dancing. Dancing? I don't see Bernard spoken wonderment, but there was an odd apprehensive note in his voice. There was always somebody dancing, said Rossiter. He halted. Then he continued in a stronger voice. Always. In the high mountains, there was somebody fasting and praying. Always before dawn, there was the sound of the rattles and the stamping footsteps. In the winter, the flame leaped high on the rock through the swirls of snow as they made fire magic. They danced, they prayed, they chanted, and the sun came up. What are you trying to say, Bernard demanded. He had risen and was standing facing the older man. That people used to think before we taught them better that they had something to do with the sun's rising. They grew too wise to believe in it any longer. But who knows? Who knows whether they were not right, whether the force that impels the stars is not finally the human will. There was a silence. <laughs> Somebody laughed nervously. Dr. Ferguson had already stepped forward and was holding Rossiter by the elbow. Together, he and Bernard urged the older man toward the Elpis. They spoke to him gently. They did not argue or disagree with him. 
They led him inside the ship. Much later, Bernard came out alone. Dr. Ferguson had remained with Rossiter, quieting him with sedatives. It was still quite dark. Bernard looked up at the sky, sighing. How long the dawn is in coming, he said, as if to himself. It's hard to believe that this story has never been republished. It's so I good. Agree. It's so good. And it's doing things that other stories do before it before those other stories. I, I looked it up. The Star by um, Clark and Nine Billion Names of God uh, by Clark are both after this. This is 1952. Uh, Nine Billion Names of God came out in 1953. Very similar theme. And The Star by Clark, again, a very similar theme. Uh... 1955. It, this this is uh, woefully underappreciated. What power in just three pages? I I agree. Although um, I do think that by naming the star Clark the star with that title, he's asking his readers to think about it in relation to H. G. Wells' quite famous story, The Star. Whereas this story by Wilton Hazard, uh, Margaret St. Clair, doesn't ask you to fit it into a genre development, which may have something to do with mm-hmm. the relative uh, importance of the Clark story. But regardless of that, I agree with you. This is a terrific story that deserves more attention. What do you see in it, Jesse? Oh, I see a whole lot of stuff. Um one of the one of the things that uh, struck me curious, first of all, was the name of their ship. It was not familiar to me. I, I thought, is that like Spanish for something? El Piss? <laughs> I don't know what it is. Um, turns out that that's not what it is. It's uh, Greek or uh, later Roman, but I think a Greek god or goddess of of the spirit of hope. Um, and it's symbol. It's it's the name of their ship because they have abandoned earth because it's been basically destroyed in a certain sense they don't know how it was destroyed they call it an incident they call it a um a mystery and of course uh we know the answer now i think at the end after another horror destroying two worlds well that is one way to read the end that is that uh when Bernard says how long the dawn is in coming, um, we can read it as, gosh, um, there will be no dawn because this this star, too, will go out because mm. the last dancers have been uh, – have, have, their dancing has been stopped, again, by human technology, this time by their, their blasters. Um, uh, previously on Earth – just by education. But there's another way to read this as well. I'm not arguing for it, but I do think that, interestingly, one could read this as uh, seeing that the dawn is a long time in coming just because one is so anxious for the dawn, which is, after all, an experience most of us have had where it just seems like it's taking so long to get to something. Um, And one could then say, well, you know, the reason that Bernard is feeling that 
is that he's just a little bit nervous that Rossiter may have been right. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that doesn't mean that Rossiter inherently was right, which from my viewpoint is one of the things that makes this a good story. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just say, hey, guess what, guys? Um, To take take Arthur Clarke, for example, The Nine Billion Names of God, at the end, um, there's a silver cross that the the two main characters view as they go down the valley uh, to escape the monks who had predicted that the world would end when these two guys had run the computer program for them. And they look up and the stars go out because, as the story says, there is a last time for everything. In Arthur Clarke's story, uh, that's a simple ending. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. religion beats science. But in St. Clair's story, maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I think this is actually a more thought-provoking story than the many times reprinted Nine Billion Names of God. I agree. Um, in fact, there's a there's a couple of things that that it makes you think of in the end, right? One one of them is it's a it's a long time uh, for dawn coming. A long how long the dawn is is in coming. It's the dawning of the of the information as well. The dawning of the realization. That it took them uh, eight years in a spacecraft, right? The 40 of them, a very interesting number, uh, trying to find a new home. And when they get there to the promised land, they destroy it as well. Um, That dawning has multiple meanings. Um, But in addition, um, one of the things that this story does, it's in a science fiction magazine. it may be a pulpy science fiction magazine, but it's, it's a science fiction magazine. Um, they get there not by um, not by you know magic, um, but when they do get there by a technology, um, it's something that could be magic that kept the universe going. And what I like about this is this is this is actually a, a big problem in philosophy, something I study quite a bit. And it's called the problem of induction. We think we understand the universe. We think we know how the rules work because we've seen how things happened in the past and we assume that there is a uniformity between the past and the future. But when things go wrong, when our theories break down, it could be that it's because the universe has somehow changed or it could be that we're just not seeing the picture uh, in the way we thought we did. We're not seeing what's actually going on. So if you examine what makes the sun come up in the morning, uh, even asking that question shows how ignorant we are. One of the things that this story does in reinforcing that idea is that they're expecting the sun to come up. But of course, unless this is a particularly strange solar system, and Proxima is not, um, it wouldn't be the sun that's orbiting the planet. It would be the other way around. And, it, and that's implicitly even said in the beginning, right? Um, it's a satellite, Proxima, right? So we know that these guys know the correct way of looking at a solar system is that the planet turns towards the sun, and that's what gives it night and day. And yet they still say waiting for the sun to come up they've got it they've got it around backwards so thinking back to what happened on earth um the sun didn't come up isn't actually what happened right 
the sun didn't disappear necessarily, as in a, a poof of poof of uh, you know gravity going away, but rather it went dark or something to that effect. And thinking what that implications have is is that the dancers cause the sun to be ignited. It makes us expand our view of reality in a certain way. What does that mean in comparison to Arthur C. Clarke's ending, where all those suns go out? Well, it's like God turning off a light switch. But in Wilton Hazard or Margaret St. Clair's universe here, if we think there is a uniformity and we've just sort of misunderstood how the science of a planet and its solar system work, then the implication is that all the other stars that we see in the background behind the astronomer Rossiter are also populated, lit, by not-so-primitive people, people who know something that we smart scientists who are so well-educated that we drag folks who don't know nothing out of their homes and force them to learn our ways. I don't know to what extent St. Clair um, wants us to push the philosophy. But if if we do, uh, let me offer a further chapter to what you've just said. Uh, if indeed it's it's the human dancing that keeps the star alight and the extinguishment of the dancing extinguishes the light, one has to ask, what lit the star initially? Yep. And since these are scientists, it's 1952, and when the story is published, um, and they know something about they don't know anything about they don't know about DNA yet, but they certainly do know about evolution, and they know about stellar evolution. Um, it seems as if one could argue that the story suggests that God, in His wisdom, created stars. And uh, or something created stars. You know, the, the universe had stars, lighted stars. And then as individuals began to accept the responsibility mm. for attending the stars, whatever it is that lighted the stars withdrew and said, OK, let there be free will. You know, first I created the heavens and the earth. Right. And the, the, I separated the light from the dark. Um, now there's free will. And if you don't exercise it properly, guess what? Your nice light world will disappear. So this could be thought of as a cautionary tale. And you did point out the, the significant number of 40 blasters, mm. 40 being such a key number in, in both the Old and New Testaments. Um, and if after the 40 days Noah were to land and say, oh, great, we've got land again, let's send some more. Mm -hmm. I don't know that God would have uh, kept the rainbow covenant. You know, who knows? Maybe he said, OK, that's it. No more dry land for you guys. And here it's no more no more light for you guys. This puts an extraordinary responsibility on us. Now, how did we get to that point? We got to that point because we got all this knowledge. Free will allowed us to explore. We used that knowledge. And then instead of saying, oh, gosh, more people, we we need to approach them. We just turned the blasters on full and destroyed them. So we have misused our gifts. Now let's go back to the ship they arrived in. It's the Elpis. Mm -hmm. As I was able to, what I was able to find is that Elpis 
means hope. But in Greek, it doesn't mean, oh, goody, I hope I'll have a lovely birthday party. (laughs) It means hope as that thing that's left in Pandora's box. Hope was understood by the ancient Greeks as something that can torment you because everything else has escaped into the world and you keep hoping that things can be better, but you're tormented by that. You keep hope and hope always will disappoint you. At the very least, you'll not have mortality. You will not have immortality because we are mortals. Now that, that gift of hope, um, that gift of hope was given to us as a punishment for what Prometheus did by bringing us the light the heavenly fire that he took from the Olympian gods and brought down to humanity. And we're all punished because we wind up getting this, the story of Prometheus and his brother and sister and so on. I think it's not irrelevant to note that Margaret St. Clair had a master's degree in Greek classics. Mm -hmm. So this story is telling us something very important, not only It's not just the suggestion that maybe there are mystic things going on, but there is the notion that we are responsible for what we learn and how we use it. This is a much more pointed story from a moral viewpoint, I think, than the easy answer that we get in the two Clark stories Mm -hmm. that you mentioned. I agree. In in fact, that um, the the matter of choice goes right to the what happened before the story started right they've just executed or defended themselves against five people one of them an old man uh one a woman one a child and and two men with stone-tipped spears 40 laser blasters or whatever they are against two stone-tipped spears and they defended by saying he ordered us Right. You just have to follow orders. Coming in 1952, so long after, so so quickly after the uh, the Nuremberg trials, I can't help but think that anybody who who reads on a regular basis would have remembered that the, the problem of that defense. Mm-hmm. We were just following orders. There's always choice. Yep. There's always more to say.